Well, one of the marks of spiritual life is our desire for progress. We want to grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be increasingly transformed into his likeness. We have an appetite for a greater experience and appreciation and enjoyment of God's blessing. Many times, doubtless in our own experience, we echo the prayer of Moses, show me your glory. And we desire that not only for ourselves personally and individually, but we desire God's blessing to rest upon the church. We desire that the kingdom of Christ would come and be advanced in all the earth. We desire to see conversions. We, see to be, we long to see multitudes streaming out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. And the question is then, how are such blessings to be obtained? Uh, well, uh, we know uh, our theology. Our soteriology uh, is, on the face of it, fairly straightforward. Uh, we know that all blessings reside in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, to enjoy salvation is to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus, through his life and his atoning death, his resurrection and his ascension, who has secured for us all that we need for salvation in this life and the next. In him we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And then secondly, we know that these blessings which reside in Christ are applied to us personally by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who quickens us from spiritual death to life. It is the Spirit who shows us our sin and the sufficiency of Christ's saving work. It is the Holy Spirit who ultimately will raise our mortal bodies on the day of resurrection. And then thirdly, we know in our theology that we receive the benefits of such salvation by faith. It is by faith that we come to Christ, and it is by faith that we are united to him. But we can say more than that, more than simply those theological principles, because the Protestant tradition since the Reformation has maintained that God has appointed means by which the Holy Spirit ordinarily applies the benefits of redemption to us through faith. And these ordinary means of grace are the word, the ministry of the word, prayer, and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, this was the position of the Reformers and the Puritans and the Great Confessions, so that the Westminster Larger Catechism says, for example, that the means of grace are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation. Or the uh, 1689 Confession. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily brought into being by the ministry of the word. It is also increased and strengthened by the work of the Spirit through the ministry of the word and also by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed by God. And so the Reformers and the Puritans were united in this view, and not only were, is this limited to Reformed theology, but, for example, John Wesley also took this position in one of his sermons. He says that by the means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, or actions ordained of God and appointed for this end 
to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey to men preventing, justifying or sanctifying grace. The chief of these means are prayer, whether in secret or with a great congregation, searching the scriptures, which implies reading, hearing and meditating thereon, and receiving the Lord's Supper, eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of him. And these, we believe, are ordained of God as the ordinary channels of conveying his grace to the souls of men. However, this advocacy of the means of grace has not always been universally popular in Protestant circles. There have always been those who would place a lower value on the ordinary means of grace, advocating that we, if we want to grow in our faith, if we want to grow in godliness, in holiness, if we want to grow in spiritual experience, then we should seek God's blessing immediately and personally by direct encounter with the Holy Spirit without the use of means. That was the position, for example, of uh, George Fox and the other early Quakers. Rather than looking at the objective and external word of God as the means of knowing Christ, Fox saw it as his mission, quote, to turn people to that inward light, spirit and grace, by which all might know their salvation and their way to God, even that divine spirit which would lead them into all truth and which I infallibly knew would never deceive any we might recognise that as a sort of extreme charismatic position uh, today, that the Spirit himself, without the use of means, directly and immediately leads us into truth and spiritual reality, quite apart from the objective standard of God's word or other means. Uh, another example of dismissing the means of grace would be the Salvation Army today, which does not practise baptism or the Lord's Supper. Their reasoning, uh, presented on one of their websites, is very interesting. It says this, quote, The Salvation Army has never said it is wrong to use the sacraments, nor does it deny that the other Christians receive grace from God through using them. Rather, the army believes that it is possible to live a holy life and receive the grace of God without the use of physical sacraments, and that they should not be regarded as an essential part of becoming a Christian. Salvationists see the sacraments as an outward sign of an inward experience, and it is the inward experience which is the most important thing. They go on to explain that they are uncomfortable, that too often the sacraments themselves have become the focus of attention rather than the spiritual reality that they represent. They are troubled that the sacraments can become divisive, that they can prompt controversy, as to whether women are allowed to administer them, and that the serving of wine in communion can be a stumbling block to converted alcoholics in their midst. So in short, the Salvationists would maintain that the sacraments are more trouble than they're worth. And it is the reality of the inward grace, the spiritual grace, which is the only important thing. And generally speaking, that's a very popular position today. I think we can all understand that from the current evangelical climate. There's a general impatience with ceremonial and ritual and formality and church structures and so on and so forth. There is an appeal to the charismatic simplicity of the immediate blessing of the Holy Spirit, immediate communion with God without the use of means. 
And so what I'm going to attempt to do in this paper is to return to the scriptures and try to set out the positive biblical case for the ordinary means of grace. First of all, what are they? And then secondly, what are their uh, value? Then we will go on and explore how the means of grace are supposed to work, namely by faith and in the context of the life of the church. And finally, we will make some practical applications. But first of all, the means of grace described. What are the means of grace according to the scriptures? Well, first of all, uh, the means of grace uh, incorporate the ministry of the word, the ministry of the word. The scripture plainly teaches that salvation comes through the word of God. Uh, It is through the word that faith is created in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Just as God created the heavens and the earth by means of a word, so he creates new spiritual life in the human soul through his word. It was by a word that the Lord Jesus summoned Lazarus from the tomb, And so it is by a word that a sinner is brought from spiritual death to life. So much so that the Apostle Paul describes the gospel message as being the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And when the gospel is being preached, it is not simply the communication of objective truth regarding God and the saving work of Christ and our condition as sinners, But rather, when the gospel is preached, it is the very words of God, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring new spiritual life. In short, it is the means of grace. And that life-giving activity of the Holy Spirit is inseparable from the ministry of the word of God in the passage that Gary read to us from Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So you cannot be saved apart from the objective word of God. And very often we will hear of those who have been spiritually awakened, perhaps uh, immediately in their souls or by some life event or by a dream or by feelings or by impressions. But the outcome of such spiritual awakening is invariably to drive them ultimately to the scriptures, to the word of God, or to the hearing of the gospel, so that they can by faith call on the name of the Lord. It is word ministry which is the means of grace. And it is word ministry which is instrumental not only in our conversion, but also our spiritual growth and our sanctification. The Lord Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, prays that the Father would sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then this this sets the apostolic agenda for ministry within the New Testament church. So that the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, goal of ministry is to proclaim Christ admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature or perfect in Christ. So the goal is to present everyone fully mature or perfect in Christ and the means of doing that, the means of grace, is by proclaiming Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone of 
Christ. In other words, the ministry of the word. And so when Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, he describes his agenda for pastoral ministry to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience. As King David reminds us in the Psalms, it is the law of the Lord which is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And again we see that connection between the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the preached word. Thomas Watson in his Body of Divinity observes that when God's Spirit joins himself with the chariot of his word, it becomes effectual. Or to use a biblical image, the sword of the Spirit, namely his offensive weapon, is the word of God. And so the word ministry is the means of grace for our salvation and for our sanctification. And then the second means of grace is prayer. Is prayer. Prayer is the means used by God for the creation and strengthening of faith in the believer. Once again, our testimony of conversion is the most obvious example. How did we come to know Christ? Well, very simply, we called on the name of the Lord. Again, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, there are a number of senses of calling on the name of the Lord, but fundamental is calling on him in prayer. Lord, save me. Uh, you think of the Pharisee and the tax collector at prayer. The sinner, we are told, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus observes, I tell you that this man went home justified before God. In other words, he received justification by faith through his prayer for mercy. And then when after we are converted, prayer continues through the Christian life as the means by which we make spiritual progress. Indeed, the Apostle Paul believed in not only our private prayer for our own personal sanctification, but he believed that it was through his apostolic prayers that the church would be built up and edified and grow spiritually. You think, for example, of his great classic prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He kneels before the Father and he prays that the Lord may strengthen you with power through his, your, his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How is that going to happen? Through Paul's prayers. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. How is that going to happen? Through Paul's prayers. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of all the fullness of God. How, again? By prayer. And uh, uh, all of these are prayers that the Holy Spirit would come and work. Indeed, the essence of prayer is that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon God's people and that we would grow and develop in godliness. Ephesians chapter 1, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and his incomparably great power for us who believe and so on. So the essence of prayer is to pray down, as it were, the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a means of grace, the means by which the Holy Spirit comes to us. This is the invitation that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. 
Because if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is given to those who ask. And we could go off at a tangent and observe that the uh, prayer is the means by which God has appointed for the accomplishment of his purposes in the world. This is a theme of scripture from beginning to end. It was uh, God's saving work in the Exodus was in response to the prayers of the Israelites suffering in bondage of the Egyptians. Uh, it, It was because of the prayers of Moses that God spared his people Israel at Mount Sinai. Again and again through the book of Judges, salvation came to the people when they cried out to him. Uh, The book of Ruth is the account of how the prayer of Naomi was answered and how Ruth found rest in the home of another husband and ultimately uh, a fruitful union. Uh, The emergence of Samuel and ultimately King David is the answer to Hannah's prayer and that whole section of scripture is the answer to Hannah's prayers. The book of Nehemiah is the account of how Nehemiah's prayer was answered. The return from exile is the answer to Daniel's prayers in Babylon and so on and so forth. The appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself is ultimately the answer to the prayer of the appearance of the Messiah. And you think for example of Simeon and Anna in the temple. It's very clear that the Apostle Paul regarded the prayers of God's people as the means of extending and making fruitful his own ministry. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. He has delivered us from such deadly peril and he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. So it's prayer is a means of grace. I think we would all agree immediately with that conclusion that the word and the prayer are the means of grace. Perhaps the sacraments uh, we might struggle a little more with and so now we open up that, that, that theme, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. How do we come to that conclusion? Well, the Lord's Supper is described as a means of grace as uh, Gary mentioned in his first paper this morning in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. Because in that verse, the Apostle Paul says that as we eat and drink at the Lord's table, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. In other words, as we eat and drink at the Lord's table, we enter into and enjoy the blessings secured by the death of Christ on the cross. The Lord's Supper is what we know as a covenant meal. The background is the Passover feast. Each family would eat the Passover lamb whose blood had been sprinkled on the doorposts of the house. And as they ate the sacrificial animals, so they enjoyed the benefit secured by that death. They were spared from God's wrath. The angel of death passed over their house and they were inside eating roast lamb and were safe from God's judgment. The eating was a participation in the benefits of their covenant relationship with God. And in the same way, the peace offering under the Levitical sacrificial system. Families would come to the altar, they would present a sacrificial animal, and while the blood would be poured out on the altar along with the fat and the internal organs, the meat would remain to be eaten by the family in the presence of the Lord. And uh, so it was to enter into the covenant blessings of peace with God and peace with one another. It's a covenant meal, the great covenant blessing is I will be your God and you will be my people and as they eat and drink they enter into the enjoyment of this blessing of being in the presence of 
the Lord. That's the same language as is used by the Apostle Paul then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. We participate, we fellowship, we share in the body and blood of Christ. We acknowledge that Christ has died once for all, that his saving work on the cross is the only means by which our sins can be forgiven. We know that his death is the only way of finding peace with God, both in this life and the next. But when we eat and drink, we participate in these things. We enter into the enjoyment of these things. The Lord is saying to us personally, uh, 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 take, eat. This is for you. We appropriate what Christ has done for us. So to quote from Thistleton, he says that it is having an active common share in the life, death, resurrection and presence of Jesus Christ as the Lord. That's what we're doing around the Lord's table. It's a means of grace. The very nature of eating is that I gain benefit from the food in a nutritional sense. It's no good saying objectively, I believe this is good food. Or of saying, I believe that eating this sort of food would do human beings good. No, I have to actually eat it myself to benefit. And that is what we are doing when we come to the table. As we trust in Christ, so we eat as he has commanded. We are going beyond saying, I believe objectively that I am a sinner. I believe objectively that Christ died for sins. I believe objectively that indeed to enjoy such blessings would be good for me and secure eternal life. Rather, as I come to the table, I am appropriating and entering into the enjoyment of such blessings of salvation. So as I eat and drink, my faith is strengthened, my assurance is refreshed, my hope of heaven is heightened. So the 1689 Confession, those who as worthy participants outwardly eat and drink the visible bread and wine in this ordinance, at the same time receive and feed upon Christ crucified and receive all the benefits accruing from his death. As we eat and drink, we, re- we receive the benefits accruing from his death. It is a means of grace. Participate in his broken body and his shed blood. And, of course, enjoy that supreme blessing of being eating and drinking in the presence of God Himself Again, Gary made the parallel this morning, the parallel the Apostle Paul makes later on in that chapter, that to go into a pagan idolatrous temple and to eat the pagan sacrifices is to fellowship with the demons who preside in that place. So the Apostle Paul's implication is to come to the Lord's table, the covenant meal, is to enjoy fellowship with God himself. There's an inescapably vertical element at this. We're taken back to the ultimate covenant meal of the Old Testament at Sinai, where Moses and the elders of Israel ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. That's what we're doing around the Lord's table. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is the host at the table. He serves the bread and the wine. He invites us. He summons us. My body has been broken for you. My sinless body has been given up. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. My blood has been shed upon the cross. Take, eat, drink, be welcomed. Enjoy these blessings of salvation. And as we do so, we enter in to those blessings and we anticipate the great celebration of the wedding supper of the Lamb. So the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. 
sadly this emphasis has largely been lost in evangelicalism today. Many take that what might be described as a memorial view of the supper, that the elements are mere symbols to remind us of Christ's death. No, Paul teaches us it's more than that. It's a participation, it's a fellowship, it's an entering in to the blessings of which the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ speak. So the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And then finally, baptism is a means of grace. The Apostle Peter describes it as such on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is the outward appointed means that God has given us to enter into and enjoy these blessings of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit by faith. Indeed, so closely are the blessings of salvation linked to baptism that the Apostle Peter speaks of the baptism which saves us. Or the Apostle Paul uses the language of identity in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's very realistic imagery, isn't it? It's a very close association of the, of the right and the blessings to be enjoyed. I I confess I grow rather weary of the popular evangelical liturgy for believers' baptism, which goes something like this. Well, we are very happy today to be baptising Ermintrude on profession of her faith. But the first thing I want to do before we go any further is I want to emphasise there is no significance whatsoever in the water that we are using today. It is just ordinary water. And I want to emphasise, first of all, that there is no significance in the one baptising. It is just an ordinary man in an ordinary way. And I want to emphasise that there is no significance whatsoever in Ermintrude being immersed in the water. It is just a visual aid. It is a picture. It is an illustration. It is an outward sign of the inward reality. In other words, the popular evangelical liturgy would say that baptism is nothing except a dramatic visual aid that points us to some sort of spiritual reality of conversion. It is a meaningless, empty ritual. And one might wonder if it were such a meaningless, empty ritual, why the Lord had commanded that converts should be baptised in such a vacuous manner. You see, this uh, evangelically popular position is in sharp contrast to the teaching, for example, of the 1689 Confession regarding the means of grace. Because we are told about the means of grace, that these are the means by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved, is the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, and is ordinarily brought into being by the ministry of the Word, and increased and strengthened by the work of the Spirit through the ministry of the Word, and also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed by God. In other words, baptism, along with the other means of grace, is a means of increasing and strengthening faith and assurance. And uh, uh, we are told that the means of grace under the heading of assurance of salvation also increase our assurance of eternal life. So those, in short, are the means of grace. Uh, The ministry of the word, prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. How do the means of grace work? Well, they work because they are received by faith. And I want to uh, uh, assure you of this point, because at this point you might be becoming a little bit uncomfortable. You might have... uh, 
uh, agreed what I said about the word and prayer, but you listen to what I say about the sacraments being the means of grace, and you wonder whether I'm advocating a position which means that the means of grace automatically or mechanically transmit the grace of God to us as we receive them. In other words, am I describing a position which might be uh, uh, labelled ex opere operato? rather like a cash machine. Uh, We put in our bank card, we punch in the appropriate PIN number, and voila, a quantity of cash or grace appears in our hands. No, that is not what is meant by the means of grace. Rather, the means of grace are the instruments in the Lord's hands which the Holy Spirit uses to create and strengthen faith in our hearts. And as we receive such ministry by faith so we receive and enjoy by faith the benefits secured by Christ's saving work. If the means of grace be exercised and the Holy Spirit does not render them effectual or they are not received by faith, then they do not serve to produce or strengthen spiritual life. That is obviously the case for the ministry of the word. The gospel is preached but it is not automatically effective so that all who hear are saved. No, we're familiar with the parable of the sower. Some falls on the path, the rocky ground, and amongst the weeds. Some respond by faith in Christ, others harden their hearts. The Apostle Paul is clear about this. We are, to some, uh, the uh, the aroma of uh, life, and to some, the aroma that brings death. And uh, notice from that text that the Apostle Paul never describes the ministry of the word as utterly ineffectual. Rather, he describes it as always being either an instrument for salvation or an instrument for spiritual hardening, which was, of of course, generally the case during the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be, be healed. Without the saving work of the Holy Spirit, without the response of faith, the means of grace do not achieve a positive result. But if the Spirit comes in power and creates faith, then we have a more positive outcome. We know, brothers and sisters, that the Lord has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. So there was a positive outcome from the means of grace. And for Christian believers, hearing a sermon will do you no good whatsoever unless you receive the message by faith. Thomas Manton, in his sermon on Matthew chapter 25, warns against spiritual sleepiness. He says, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. If you would not quench the spirit, you must not carelessly use the means of grace. In other words, don't fall asleep under the preacher. The sermon will not automatically do you good unless you attend by faith. And uh, uh, equally, the preacher cannot simply churn out some random Bible study, some references to the word of God, and assume that automatically and immediately the Holy Spirit will bless that for the good and the help and the salvation or the edification of his people. That's why preachers are to be imaginative and creative and effective in our style of presentation, as was the Apostle Paul. His evangelistic ministry looked very different in Iconium than in Athens. It was presented differently to Jews and Gentiles. 
He speaks of reasoning and pleading and persuading. Because, because word ministry is a means of grace, doesn't it, it doesn't mean it's some automatic magic bullet or some medicine which automatically will take effect. Thomas Manton goes on to say, a dull ministry as well as a dull minister maketh us fall asleep. And so it is. And in the same way, prayer is not automatically and immediately effective. Indeed, if we pray in a double-minded or a worldly manner without faith, we will not receive what we asked for, James chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, because the people were faithless, the Lord said to them, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. And in the same way, the sacraments are not always automatically effective. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul makes precisely this point, referring to the old covenant community. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. He's saying the overwhelming majority of members of the old covenant were unregenerate. They enjoyed the means of grace but they did not benefit spiritually from the means of grace because they did not receive them by faith. They were baptized, figuratively speaking. They received spiritual food, the Lord's Supper, spiritually speaking, in an old covenant context, but it was not ultimately to their spiritual benefit. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper do not automatically convey an enjoyment of the blessings of salvation unless they are received by faith. Indeed, Paul warns that those who receive the Lord's Supper unworth, uh, receive the Lord's Supper unworthily bring judgment on themselves. Notice again, the Lord's Supper is, Supper is not neutral. It's not a nothing. So you either receive the Lord's Supper and you are edified and strengthened in your faith, or you bring judgment on yourselves. There doesn't seem to me to be a mediating position. And so our position is that fundamentally, the blessings of salvation are received not by sacraments, but by faith. Now, this is an important and interesting point. So that when, while we disagree with the Salvationists in their refusal to practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, yet we would not exclude them from heaven on that account. It is possible to be a Christian believer who has not been baptized or has never taken the Lord's Supper. The obvious example is the dying thief upon the cross, but the point could be extended to others. The reason why the salvationist position is mistaken is twofold. First of all, the salvationists are being deliberately disobedient to the clear command of the Lord Jesus and his apostles. The Great Commission clearly commands the church in every age to baptise disciples. Converts are commanded to be baptised. The apostles assume that all believers will have been baptised. Christ himself and the Apostle Paul command us to remember his death in bread and wine. We are not to be disobedient to such commands. So the salvation, salvationist position to me is utterly unacceptable. And secondly, it is to our detriment to neglect the means of grace which the Lord has appointed. We are missing out on something. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not merely empty symbols devoid of meaning and purpose. The anti-sacramentalist will claim that believers' baptism can be replaced simply by the convert giving their testimony at the front of the church, or that the Lord's Supper can be replaced simply by meditating together on the significance of the cross. But no, the Lord has appointed these sacraments as means by which we grow in assurance and enjoyment of the saving benefits secured by Christ, and if we neglect them, then we are the poorer for it. Illustrations are always imperfect, but let me attempt 
Imagine that I get a text this afternoon from my daughter who asked me to meet her at a local restaurant because she has something important to tell me. Imagine that I ignore the text and simply go home. Doubtless my daughter will forgive me, ultimately, for my negligence, so the relationship is still intact, she is still my daughter. Doubtless I will ultimately find out by other means that she is thinking of getting engaged to some young man. But in a real sense, I have missed the moment. I've missed the appointed hour. The opportunity to fellowship at a deep level has gone. Well, so it is. When the Lord Jesus holds out to us, not only ministry of word and prayer and the Lord's Supper and baptism as means of grace, opportunities, trysting places, if you like, with himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we neglect them, ignore them, or say they are more trouble than they are worth. Well, it may be that we are saved nevertheless, but but equally we are poorer for it. Thirdly, the means of grace generally operate within the context of the church. The means of grace generally operate within the context of the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are obviously church ordinances, but we are also taught that generally speaking, word ministry and prayer will be exercised within God's family. We don't diminish the importance of private Bible study and private prayer, which are commanded by the Lord and which are vitally important. But when the New Testament speaks of us growing in grace or the Holy Spirit working powerfully amongst us, it is usually in a corporate context. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, as Gary was reminding us in the first paper, we are taught that it is the family of the church where God dwells by his Spirit, and now we've had all the theological background to that filled in in our minds. We are told that where two or three are gathered together, particularly in the context of reconciliation and being at peace with one another, there is the Lord with them. And so there is the proper expectation of the Spirit to work through the word and prayer within that corporate context. And there's a special sense of divine power in corporate prayer. For example, in Acts chapter 4 where the place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So the means of grace operate within the church context because that is the place where God dwells by his spirit in a special way. And secondly, the means of grace operate in a church context because they operate between and amongst the different members of the church. The Apostle Paul says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Or indeed the fullness of the Spirit is associated with such uh, mutual ministry. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from the, in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you notice then that singing is also a means of grace when it is the singing of scriptural themes and scriptural words to one another. It doesn't have to be necessarily preach ministry. It doesn't have to be ministry from the front. It can be intermember ministry of exhorting and rebuking and encouraging or small group Bible study or whatever it might be. All of these mutual encouragements uh, together are means of grace in that sense of word ministry. And it is together corporately that we grow up in our salvation to maturity in Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure 
of the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I can cope with the NIV, I can understand it more easily. And fourthly and finally, we'll make some practical observations. So we'll see, we've seen what the means of grace are. Uh, prayer, the word, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We've seen they operate by means of faith. We've seen that they're generally within the context of the church and now we make some practical observations. There is, generally speaking, a reaction against emphasising the means of grace nowadays in evangelical circles. The reasons for this are, are various, but just to identify one or two, the means of grace tend to be associated in people's minds with a mechanical and a formal exercise of religion rather than spiritual reality and it is spiritual reality it is the personal it is the individual it is what is going on and experienced and enjoyed in my heart which is the premium thing and so there's a reaction against formalism and ritual and ceremonial and indeed institutionalism of the Christian church and we want the immediacy of a direct encounter with the Holy Spirit without the use of means. And so there tends to be a slight discomfort about talking about the means of grace. And then alongside this emphasis on the immediacy of spiritual experience is an impatience with the gradual operation of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace. Because the scripture warns us or describes to us that generally speaking, the Holy Spirit works through the means of grace and, for example, the ministry of the word to produce slow and gradual results. Many of us are preachers, so we will be, we'll, we will be familiar with that. We labor long and hard during the week in preparing our sermons we pray earnestly that they will have a mighty spiritual impact in the reformation and the revival of the church and indeed the conversion of multitudes. And then we preach. And after the service it is almost as if nothing has happened. And we wonder what became of all our labours and all of our prayers. And as our uh, dear beloved members of the church family go out of the door, they shake us warmly by the hand, say, nice sermon, vicar. And we see them again the next Sunday morning. Well, we should not be surprised by such unspectacular results. The Lord Jesus Christ warns us of precisely that. He speaks of the man who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head, and as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. You see, of the organic model, the temptation to us as preachers is that we want immediate results. We want to dig up in the ground and have a look and see what's happening with the little seed. But sadly, if we attempt to do that, we will almost invariably kill it. We need to be patient. And over the weeks and the months and the years and, yes, the decades, results will come. But they come, as the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us, in an organic manner. Think again of the parable of the sower. Again, it's an agricultural illustration, not just because agricultural illustrations happen to be at hand and to be culturally relevant, but also because they're particularly pertinent to the way in which the means of grace work. 
or the parable of the mustard seed growing to become a great tree. Now, all of us know that gardening is a slow and a patient business, or it should be. I mean, not if you cheat and you go to the garden centre and you get the plants already fully grown and you just drop them in the garden and it's a ready-made garden. If you do it properly and you grow everything from seed then it is slow and painstaking. It takes years until ultimately you see results. Some seasons are more exciting than others. There'll be some seasons when it shoots up, other seasons when it seems to be very slow. There'll be some part times of the year when the buds appear and suddenly burst into bloom, or then suddenly there is an enormous harvest to be reaped. But generally speaking, it is a slow and a patient Work. Well, that's what word ministry is like, the means of grace. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He works in a spiritually organic way. And the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit's work in the means of grace in prayer. Some prayers may be provoked by an immediate crisis or distress, but what is emphasized more clearly than anything else in the New Testament is the importance of persevering prayer, praying and not giving up. You remember the persistent widow who prays and prays and prays and knocks and knocks on the door until ultimately the unjust judge gives her what she requires. Or the friend at midnight who keeps on and on and on and on knocking until ultimately he gets an answer. Or Jacob wrestling all night with the Lord and refusing to let go until ultimately he receives the blessing. See, the picture of the way in which the means of grace works is by slow, organic, and gradual progress. Now, inevitably, in our modern age, particularly in our high-speed technological age, we are impatient with such images of organic, slow, gradual growth. In a right sense, we're spiritually zealous. We want revival now. We want to see progress now. We want to see uh, a reformation now. Uh, And we associate in our minds the supernatural activity of God with something immediate. I think many of us make that dichotomy in our minds. Yes, gardening is a slow business, but supernatural activity is immediate and dramatic. So in the physical world, we understand that a baby does not develop immediately into adulthood. It takes months and years of regular food and drink and exercise. We understand that knowledge is painstakingly obtained by the slow processes of study and learning. But we long for the supernatural, which we assume is of a completely different order and a completely different realm. And it will just bang, it will just happen suddenly and instantaneously. But such a distinction is false. Because the same God is sovereign over both the physical and the spiritual realms. And in both realms, his usual course is by orderly progression. The creation of the universe was in one sense sudden and miraculous, but also it was an orderly progression over the course of six days. Our first response to the account of Genesis 1 is, why did it take so long? That's the perplexity of reading that chapter, isn't it? And yet that's the way the Lord chooses to work. He chooses to work in a gradual and an orderly way. Human societies grow and evolve over over millennia. So the kingdom of God, likewise, generally gradually and slowly evolves over hundreds of years under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And our own spiritual experience makes slow and gradual progress. It's It's no accident that the Lord's Supper is presented to us as food. Because we know that food sustains us by regular and repeated intake. 
Just because our spiritual experience seems slow and ordinary does not mean that it is not supernatural. Just because as preachers we do not see immediate and spectacular results does not necessarily mean that progress is not being made or that God is not building his church through the means of grace. And if we see the way in which the means of grace generally work, then we understand the emphasis of the New Testament on disciplining ourselves to godliness. There are no shortcuts, you see. There are no easy routes to godliness and spiritual progress. To devoting ourselves to the regular ministry, as the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, you remember. The public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching, devote yourselves to these things. Or, for example, the daily discipline of Daniel in praying three times a day. How many years did Daniel pray three times a day before finally the angel arrived? And presumably he didn't know the angel would ultimately arrive, but he knew that indeed the way of prayer is to persevere and go on and on and on and on. Ultimately he trusts the Lord would hear and answer. Well, so it is the way with the appointed means of grace that the Lord has provided for us. That is the way in which the kingdom of God, generally speaking, is extended. And so in conclusion, what is our appropriate attitude to the means of grace? We have an appetite to grow and to see God's kingdom come. Well, so we are to direct that appetite, that ambition, that desire to see grow through the appointed means of grace. And so we are to encourage within ourselves and within our people a sense of expectation as they come to the means of grace, to have that sense, as Gary so helpfully said, and I think the Puritans were brilliant in this, of the way in which they describe preaching as prophesying, for all of the unhelpful confusion with the definition of prophecy, yet nevertheless the sense of it is precisely spot on. The expectation that when you come to the preached word, you are engaging with the living word of God with a sense of expectation that God hears and answers prayer, that when you come to the table, as I often say to my people in church, I hope you come to the table hungry. I, co- I hope you've come to the table with an appetite, with a keen appetite to feed on Christ. Or as I say to baptismal candidates, a real sense of expectation that this is an ordinance in which the Holy Spirit will meet with you and seal to you the blessings of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and pour out his Holy Spirit upon you in a special way so that you might enjoy his fullness. You see a sense of expectation because these are the means of grace that the Lord has provided. And yet also a realistic expectation, a realistic expectation. If we overhype, then ultimately disillusionment will settle in. We come back to those organic pictures. When I come to my, read my Bible each morning, when I come to the Lord in prayer, I do not always have an overwhelming, powerful, emotional experience. I do not always have that immediate sense of being in the most holy place. But it doesn't necessarily mean that nothing has happened or that no benefit has been achieved or there has been no supernatural activity or that the Holy Spirit is not present. No, it is slow and gradual. That is the way of the Lord. And so if we are eager to see spiritual progress for the church and for the gospel, then we need to apply ourselves zealously and diligently to the means of grace. We need to make the gospel as widely known as we can, to pray as much as we can, to teach our people to value the sacraments as we grow in our love for Christ and our dependence on his finished work. And then whether the Holy Spirit attends such means of grace with extraordinary blessing in times of revival or whether he gives slow and steady progress, 
Yet we trust that the name of Christ will be honoured both in the manner in which we pursue our ministries and the fruit which we trust will result. Amen. Thank you.